Bible. There is, and again, it was hard to, but some of it's just reading, so. Okay. A newly discovered chapter in the book of Genesis has provided the answer to where do pets come from. Adam said, Lord, when I was in the garden, you walked with me every day. Now I do not see you anymore. I'm lonesome here, and it's difficult for me to remember how much you love me. God said, no problem. I will create a companion for you that will be with you forever and who will be a reflection of my love for you so that you will love me even when you cannot see me. Regardless of how selfish or childish or unlovable you may be, this new companion will accept you as you are and will love you as I do in spite of yourself. So God created a new animal to be a companion for Adam and it was a good animal and God was pleased. And the new animal was pleased to be with Adam and he wagged his tail. And Adam said, Lord, I've already named all the animals in the kingdom and I cannot think of a name for this new animal. And God said, no problem. Because I have created this new animal to be a reflection of my love for you, his name will be a reflection of my own name and you will call him Dog. And Dog lived with Adam and was a companion to him and loved him. And Adam was comforted and God was pleased. And Dog was content and wagged his tail. After a while, it came to pass that Adam's guardian angel came to the Lord and said, Lord, Adam has become filled with pride. He struts and preens like a peacock, and he believes he is worthy of adoration. Dog has indeed taught him that he is loved, but perhaps too well. And the Lord said, No problem. I will create for him a companion who will be with him forever and who will see him as he is. The companion will remind him of his limitations, so he will know that he is not always worthy of adoration. God created Cat to be a companion to Adam, and Cat would not obey Adam. And when Adam gazed into Cat's eyes, he was reminded that he was not the supreme being, and Adam learned humility. And God was pleased, and Adam was greatly improved, and Dog was happy, and the cat couldn't give a hoot one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> they all live happily ever after. Amen. <laughs> I read this. This kind of hit me. Um, and I've been using that flash glance and gaze. I had a gaze because of uh, the Second Corinthians 3.14. Throughout my day, ever since Friday, like I'd be at work, oh, here's a flash, Lord, just to let you know I'm thinking about you. Oh, here's a quick glance, Lord, let you know. And uh, so it, I, I really was blessed by that. But this morning, I read this. It says, God, it's in Psalm 67, 1 through 2. God, be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us that your way may become known on the earth your salvation among all nations. So the mercy, the blessing, his favor is for the purpose of making his way known on the earth and bringing salvation to nations. And so uh, Bill was talking about uh, what will cause the salvation of na nations uh, and it's the blessings Blessings are what preceded both statements of nations coming to Christ. Bless us so that they'll know what you're like, and God shall bless us, and they'll come to him. No wonder the devil works so hard to undermine our confidence in his absolute uh, goodness. And then he said, blessings are manifestations of increased favor, yet favor has a purpose. So without discovering that purpose, we're prone to self-promotion and personal kingdom building. And so he quotes uh, the Queen of Sheba, how she said, said to Solomon, Because the Lord has loved Israel, therefore he made you king. Because God loved Israel, he showed favor upon Solomon. 
Favor was to benefit those he served as king or it would be misused. So I wrote down the questions to ask God, who do you want to love through me? So it's like the favor, you know, we are blessed in the favor. Like we can't just take it like, oh, you're so nice. Like what, what is the purpose of that favor? And then what clues might be in the favor given? So I thought that could be like the area he particularly blesses you in or the location maybe he continually blesses you in, that that might be a clue to the people you're supposed to love using that favor. So anyway, I thought that was a... Um, because there is a lot of bad news out there, and a lot of people are scared. And I think people that display His goodness and His kindness, well, it, the Bible says it leads people to repentance. And that's better than being jerks. <laughs> Preaching to myself. Okay, I forgot my Bible. Uh, it's all in here, though, um, but I feel weird not having it. Uh, we're in First uh, Kings 16. And now we're getting to Ahab and Jezebel. And I think next week we'll take a little detour into Elijah and Elisha. It's kind of a funny story how Elijah calls Elisha and then keeps telling him to go away. And Elisha's like, mm-mm, I am stuck to you like glue. Uh, but I want to get into this aspect of it and kind of give you an idea of where this Jezebel thing came from. Uh, some don't even know if that was actually her real name that it might have been a name that Israel gave her, but it could have been. Uh, I didn't dig enough to know if we have any historical documents or records uh, to let us know that. But in 1 Kings 16, 29 through 30, it says in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all before him. So I think the only other king that was the same or worse was Manasseh. I think he even did worse than Ahab. So Ahab did more than any of the kings before him. Now, if we remember from last week, Omri was not a king by blood. Remember, he took over Israel as a general. He was the commander of the army and uh, he took it away from Zimri. We know that he appeared, uh, adopted a Yahwistic view, but I would be suspect of that faith just because the only example he had of the worshiping of Yahweh was in the kingdom of Israel, which was perverted from the start by Jeroboam. So obviously it's not going to be what we would consider an adoption of the uh, faith of God that we saw in Judah. And then at this point, we clearly see that Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom and Jerusalem is the capital of the southern kingdom. So in verses 31 through 34, it says, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbael, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Bel and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Bel in the house of Bel, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all of the kings who were before him. In his days, now this is kind of like a weird little rab rabbit twelve. Rabbit twelve. The twelve, folks. Rabbit Trail 
in the days of Hiel of Bethel, he built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, <laughs> according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, we'll get back to that little thing right there, but I want to look at the, the story of Ahab and Jezebel. The cultural implications, the spiritual implications are significant. So the first indictment is that he followed in the sins of Jeroboam. So the sins of Jeroboam are very clearly idolatry, the false religious system, the counterfeit religious system. It was Jeroboam who set up the two calves. One was at Bethel, one was at Dan. He had a counterfeit priesthood and a counterfeit system of worship. This then opened the door to all kinds of idolatry. And then you get Ahab in there, and he opens basically an entirely new system and new level of wickedness and idolatry and worship. Do you have something, Kathy? Well, I, no, I'm just looking at the, the Asherah pole. Which that's what Gideon tore down. down. Yeah. Okay, now in the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible, the daughter of Ethbel, king of uh, Sidon, the, you know, referring to Jezebel, she became the wife of Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel. The marriage was probably a continuation of the friendly relations between Israel and Phoenicia, because remember Solomon would give Hiram, I believe, land, and that was like one of the tipping points for Jeroboam and the other, a uh, couple of the other tribes to uh, rebel. And so Omri also had um, a good relationship between Israel and Phoenicia, and he confirmed a political alliance between the two nations. Jezebel exerted a strong influence over the life of Israel as she insisted on establishing the worship of Baal and demanded the absolute rights of the monarchy. So strong was her pagan influence that, scriptures, uh, uh, that Scripture attributes the apostasy of Ahab directly to Jezebel. Jezebel's efforts to establish Bel worship in Israel began with Ahab's acceptance of Bel following the marriage. Ahab followed Jezebel's practices by building a house of worship and altar for Bel at Samaria and by setting aside a grove probably for worship of the Asherah. A campaign was then conducted to exterminate the prophets of God. While Jezebel organized and supported large groups of Bel prophets, housing and feeding large numbers of them in the royal palace. To meet this challenge, God sent Elijah, first to prophesy a drought, which lasted three years. Okay, now one source stated that her name meant chaste, which I kind of find ironic, uh, but they say the reason that her name meant that is she was faithful to her father's national religion. I think I've read something, but I don't, uh, off the top of my head, remember where, or even if that's uh, exactly the whole fullness of it. But because of her position as being the daughter of the king, which mm -hmm. would make her a princess, um, they speculated that she would have been like the head priestess type thing. That makes sense. Like a figurehead priestess for that religion as um, because of her uh, <coughs> royalty. Yeah. That makes sense. I can see her definitely being the, the head priestess, right. the head authority. And, you know, a lot of people throw around the name Jezebel to speak of a strong woman. 
and even to refer to one that maybe is trying to gain power through uh, illegal authority. But I think people need to understand that Jezebel, there were specific things that she did that Jesus later outlines, and that is teaching false doctrine uh, and causing people to sin. Plus, there's a sexual component to that sin. Uh, so it's turning people away from God to worship other gods, even if it's herself. So I think people need to quit just throwing around the name Jezebel just because a woman is a strong leader. Uh, then you'd have to call Deborah a Jezebel. And so, uh, but if you see signs like manipulation, um, seduction, teaching people false doctrine, trying to gain a clique that is in you know um, opposition to the pastor or the leader, yes, we could definitely say that there's a Jezebel working, but I think that name has been flung around maybe a little too loosely. Uh, now the Anchor Yale Bible Dictionary, you know, again says that she's the daughter of the King of the Sidonians. Uh, as it is vocalized in the Mesoteric text, that's what MT means, the name Jezebel is probably a two-layered uh, parody. The original, original name is Where is the Prince first, then it became No Nobility, or Zeb and then you got Zebul, which is a title for Bell, and then distorted into Zebel, which means dung. So just like the Israelites, um, you know, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, they called him another name. I can't remember what it was, but basically the crazy man. They, like he was the crazy one. Uh, so the Israelites had a name for Antiochus that was an insult. It sounds like Jezebel is also an insult uh, to her and basically calling her crap. That was her name. So every time they said Jezebel, they're calling her dung. Okay, <laughs> so in case you wanted to have a little bit, of, about her. you know, a little bit of insight there. But you know, I can't help but think, you know, the political alliance between Ahab and Jezebel is what Solomon did over and over and over, and it led his heart to betray God. So God's not a respecter of persons; He's not unjust. So why was the the uh, anger and the judgment toward Ahab and Jezebel and that system worse than Solomon. So I want to break that down really quick um, because he actually is the one that legally opened the door to foreign wives. But I've got uh, this other thing uh, here from the anchor yell. It says, in depicting her mainly as in scrupulous foreign woman who illicitly intruded in affairs of her royal husband, the biblical text glosses text gloss over the fact that Jezebel probably wielded considerable authority in her position as a queen. According to Brenner, Jezebel had two sources of power. The first was her status in her Phoenician homeland. As the daughter of Ethbel, uh, king of the Sidonians, she was a princess by birth. According to Josephus, Ethbel was also a priest uh, uh, in the Phoenician cult of the goddess Astarte. Brenner suggests that Phoenicia followed the Mesopotamian practice of appointing the king's daughter, well, there you go, yeah. as the high priestess of the chief local god, in this case, Baal Malkort, or Cart, however you say that. With the king as high priest and his daughter serving as high priestess, links between the monarchy and the state religion were considerably strengthened. Together, the two were able to wield substantial political, economic, and religious power over the land. Hence, when Jezebel came to Israel, she was accustomed 
to be an active participant in government. She promoted the cult of Baal, which had long enjoyed extensive support in Israel since her status as a god's high priestess was integral to her authority as queen. Another power base then was derived from her husband Ahab. In spite of the negative bias of the Deuteronomistic framework, the texts reveal that she was an active partner in her husband's rule. Her religious and political skills made her a natural colleague in his administration. She had enough material resources to support 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah at her table, so she paid for that. Moreover, the Naboth story indicates that her letter, letters written in Ahab's name and the use of the king's seal were routine acts on her part rather than an illegitimate usurpation of authority. There is no suggestion that these exercises of power were restricted just to the Naboth episode. Brenner thinks that Ahab allowed Jezebel to carry on her religious and political role because it strengthened his rule more effectively. The biblical narrators would have suppressed information of Jezebel as high priestess of Baal since they did not acknowledge the validity of a female priesthood and the authority inherent in it. So in other words, she had a legitimate cultural right uh, of rule and carried that into um, Israel. It's kind of like, you know, everybody takes uh, the Corinthian, you know, where the woman's not allowed to speak and blah, blah, blah. And like we've studied out, what was going on there was actually in the culture of Corinth, women were in higher esteem than men because there was a big uh, priestess cult. There was a, a, a big female cult there, and they would get the oracles of the gods, and they would say them to people. So when they got born again, they enter into a framework that they're not used to, of they no longer have that authority just to be a spokesman of God, so they need to learn mutual submission but on the other hand, the men who were also used to worshiping the women as oracles then had to adjust themselves. So where Paul said, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. If you look at that word authority in the Greek, uh, it means to take uh, authority aggressively. It's a takeover. It's not a legitimate legal authority because you've got to take all the word. In, uh, I think it was Galatians, Paul said, there's neither male nor female in, in Christ. So when you're in the role of kingdom work, there's no gender. So authority can rest on a male or a female. And then if you go back to even God made man and gave him authority uh, in Genesis, that word man is actually mankind. We even see that used in a more recent document, and that's our Declaration of Independence where it says that man has been given, remember we learned that from Chris Ann, that that word man is not males. It was never meant to be interpreted males. It was mankind. So here we have a situation where she actually has a legitimate authority, uh, and her and her husband were working together to bring about a lot of bad stuff. Now she is the epitome of unfaithfulness to the Lord, and her name forever, even to this day, is synonymous for a wicked woman. In the Easton's Bible Dictionary, it says this was the first time that a king of Israel had, had allowed himself by marriage with a heathen princess. Now, I don't get that because Solomon actually did. So I don't know if they're referring just to the kingdom of Israel or if they're referring in the totality of the kings, 
but we know that Solomon did, so they must be referring just to Israel. And the alliance was in this case of a peculiar, peculiarly <laughs> disastrous kind. Jezebel has stamped her name on history as the representative of all that is designing, crafty, malicious, revengeful, and cruel. She is the first great instigator of persecution against the saints of God, guided by no principle, restrained by no fear of either God or man, passionate in her attachment to her heathen worship. She spared no pains to maintain idolatry around her in all its splendor. 450 prophets ministered under her care to Bel, besides the ones to the groves, which ate at her table. The idolatry, too, was of the most debased and sensual kind. Her conduct was in many respects very disastrous to the kingdom of both Israel uh, and Judah. Now, the reason it spilled over into Judah is remember Ahab gave his daughter to uh, Jehoshaphat. So uh, it's Athaliah, I think, um, was given in, oh, I'm sorry, not to Jehoshaphat, to Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. So there's this marriage alignment now that will eventually open the door to the same type of idolatry in Judah. So that's why marriage and business partnerships are so important because whatever the other brings to the table, guess what, that's gonna be in there. And when you make a partnership, you're coming into agreement. So whatever spirit is operating, if it's God, it's good. If it's not, you're gonna all of a sudden start having some bad stuff happen and uh, some evil things. Okay, now let's get to the, the curse of Jericho, that Hael who rebuilt Jericho, because that was that little rabbit trail. So the author of Kings tied an incident with Hael to Ahab, which makes him wonder if he thought that Ahab either didn't stop it or he commissioned the rebuilding of Jericho secretly. But it appears that a Bethel native rebuilt it. The idea that a single man rebuilt a city is very telling because he had to be a man of wealth to rebuild that entire uh, city on his own. In Joshua 6, 26 through 27, Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, cursed before the Lord, notice it's all caps, so that's Yahweh, be the man who rises up and rebuilds his city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation and at the cost of his second son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all of the land. And the word came to pass exactly as Joshua decreed. Hael lost his firstborn, Abram, laying the foundations, and his youngest, Segub, getting the gates. So God's faithful, and what he says is going to happen. That's like that. And I would look it up if I had a Bible with me. But in, uh, I don't know if it's in First or Second Timothy, it says the Lord is faithful when we're not. It's like a quote, and that's actually a quote from a hymn. And so what that means is if he said, if you deny me before people, I will deny you. If you don't, I won't. Like he, even to his own hurt and having to, you know, dismiss people from his presence because they didn't know him, they weren't born again. Is it 2 Timothy? What's the scripture reference? 2.13. 2.13. So he will keep his word even if it hurts his heart because he's faithful. And so here we have all these years later that example. Okay. The cost of wickedness. Now here we are back to the question. 
Why was the judgment on Israel and Ahab and Jezebel so much more severe than that which was on Solomon? And this is going to bless y'all's socks off. Now, you probably don't want your socks off because <laughs> by looking at everyone wearing coats and them being zipped all the way up to their you know, throat, it's obvious y'all are cold. Okay, so I want to go back to 1 Kings 11, 1 through 2. It says, Now King Solomon loved many women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these women in love. Then in verses 4 through 8 it says, For when Solomon was old, take note of that, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true or loyal. That's what that means. Holy true is loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the one that they would sacrifice babies to, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrifice to their gods. Now, quite frankly, I think the author of Kings is glossing over a little bit of this. I mean, let's look at this. You have Solomon that has tons of altars and idolatry and all this stuff set up all over the place. Ahab had Baal and Ashtoreth. Right? So why, again, did Ahab get in more trouble than Solomon? He had gods everywhere. And not only that, all the ites that they drove out, he gets back in. You know what I mean? So it's like, man, what on earth? Now, here's a couple things that I think is going on here. The first one is the timing. All this happened when he was old. In other words, his heart turned from God when he was old. So what it sounds like is he would marry these women. They would have their temples and they would have, you know, it, we all need to allow one another to worship whomever because all roads lead to the same place. Okay, so that's kind of what would happen. But he did not actively participate in the worship for a long time until he got old. Okay, so that's kind of like making brownies. You know that story of people that wanted, you know, the kids wanted to watch this movie, but only had a little bit of sex and a little bit of cuss words. And so the dad's like, well, let me think about it. So he made them a batch of brownies. And he told them, he said, I've made y'all a batch of brownies, but I've included a new ingredient in this batch of brownies. And they're like, oh, what is it? And he said, poop. Took some dog poop, and I put it in with the brownies, but it's only a little bit. <laughs> so it should not affect the taste, and it should not harm you. And all of a sudden, that movie was not as attractive as it was before. So this, to me, is the same thing. I'm not going to worship their gods, but they're my wives. I love them. I'm going to let them have their own idolatry, but I'll stay out of it. And like anything that is sin, it lures you in. You cannot have, you cannot entertain it. You can't <clears throat> pet it. You can't, <clears throat> excuse me, ignore it. <clears throat> Goodness. Okay, so the timing was very important. 
if Solomon had turned away when he was younger, right at the beginning of his reign, I think he would have opened up himself to much more judgment. Because we see in verses 9 through 14, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him that he should not go after other gods. So he told him, he said, Since this has been your practice and you've not kept my covenant, my statutes, I will surely tear the kingdom from your hand. Here's the next phrase. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear it out, uh, all of it out, but I'll give one tribe to your son for the sake of David my servant and the sake of Jerusalem. Now, if we go back to the word that was given to Jeroboam, the word was, if you follow me and if you don't, if you walk in the ways of David, I will build your kingdom just like I did David's. Jeroboam didn't keep his end of the deal up. Therefore, God was under no obligation to keep his word to Jeroboam to not have things happen in their lifetime because they didn't keep their end of the bargain right from the very start. But for David's sake, for honor of David, he would not do it during Solomon's days, but he did raise up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite, and he was of the royal house of uh, Edom. So the phrase... For the sake of David means basically out of honor or respect for. So God gave his word to David concerning Solomon. And he had much honor for David. Therefore, the full judgment was held off. And this is a great example of God's long-suffering with us and the uh, opportunities he gives us to turn. Well, that, and I think it's also a great example of his love for us because he loved David so much that he did he honored him onto Solomon basically <clears throat> yeah and so if he loves us so much will he extend that mercy to our children our, yeah you know yeah and then you have like Jesus you know God is not some angry God that Jesus is holding back we've talked about that however the other side of that is for the sake of his son he's very long-suffering even more so because of Jesus but if you, I think it, it's, it might be the mirror um, or the passion, but in Galatians, I think it says that he loves us the same that he loves Jesus. So that is an incredible statement uh, because Jesus was without sin. We weren't, and, uh, but he has now made us as if. So anyway, it's an interesting thing that out of his love, like Abraham, because of his relationship with Abraham, he told him about Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, so Abraham would intercede. So it's just really neat. In Second uh, Peter three nine, it says, "The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." That word wishing. Remember the two words for will, uh, thulo, I think, and bulo. Uh, one is a desire that God has that will not be met a hundred percent. And one is, it will happen a hundred percent. Jesus is returning. He is going to bring his rewards with him. He is going to set up his rule. Those are things that will not be stopped. But here where it says, not wishing that any should perish, the New King James has not willing. His desire is that no one perishes, although he knows that's just not going to be. Because people have a free will. Now with Ahab, his intent from the start was to do evil, which is evident by his immediate actions of marrying Jezebel 
continuing the introduction and expansion of idolatry in Israel, and then his second, second, subsequent actions. Even so, God was long-suffering, but as happens with any wicked or immature leader, the entire nation suffers. So a drought came upon them. Now this is from Elijah. So Elijah was a prophet sent to bring correction. In 1 Kings 17 it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, Depart from him and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, uh, which is east of Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. But after a while it dried up because there was no rain. Now this is a very important passage. Judgment on a nation will affect Christians. The key to navigating successfully through the judgment is obeying what he tells you to do. Okay? So if Elijah didn't go to the brook, guess what? He wouldn't have been fed. So he had to follow directions, and he had to go to that brook, and that required faith because action is spurred by faith. So I just wanted to point that out. But... I want to revisit a section of the teaching from Hebrews on the four levels of judgment, okay, or discipline. Okay, so this is from the Hebrews teaching we did, I think from chapter 12 or uh, 13. We are to esteem highly the Lord's discipline of us because it is one of the highest honors we can receive from Him. It is a great demonstration of His love for us, but how does He discipline? This is a crucial question to answer because I find some that think anything bad that happens to them is his discipline and others that think that he doesn't punish at all. The word discipline is pedeus and is instruction. It did evolve to mean chastening because of effectual, all effectual instruction for the sinful children of men includes and implies chastening or correction. I believe this shows a progression of discipline if we refuse to hear, which we'll get to in a second. There are three other Greek words used for chastisement or discipline. One is nathesia, and that is instruction by the word. Okay, so that's the first part. He wants to teach you by his word. Then comes pedeia, which is by deed. So now you're going to join action with what you learn. Colossus is another word. It means penal affliction, infliction, and punishment, and then tamoria, which is penalty, punishment, which, den- which denote penal retribution, while Padea speaks of correction, educative discipline. Two refer to imprisonment. So the Colossus and tamoria refuse to, or refer to, a judgment has been given of guilty. Now you will suffer the consequences of that guilty verdict. The first two are attempts through word and deed to train us and to correct our course so that we don't have to go into the guilt uh, verdict. Does that make sense? So what's important to understand is that the ministry of Elijah is a duel between the true God and their gods. 
So Omri had supposedly converted to Yahwehism, but again, we don't know which one. Then you get Ahab and Jezebel in a period of violent persecution of Yahwehism because now the lipstick is off the pig, right? There's no lipstick on the pig. There's no, uh, we're trying to say this is Yahwehism when it's not. Now everybody knows we are full-blown Baalism uh, in contrast to Yahwehism. So now the drought. Why a drought? Because Baal claimed authority over storms and fertility. Right? And I think uh, Kathy had taught us that a long time ago. So, this is a direct target. God has pronounced Bell guilty, and therefore he's going to bring a judgment on Bell, and that is a drought. Now, it's like, okay, if your God is real, where's the rain? Okay, so that's what's happening. If your God is real and he's over rain, where is he? If he's over fertility, where are all the crops? There's no crops. So this is what's happening. This is still a corrective measure. Okay, he's trying to get their heart to turn back to him as a nation. Okay, uh, but, uh, Ahab unfortunately didn't see that way. He thought the drought was Bell's displeasure at Elijah's blasphemy. That's the problem with deception. Now, What's interesting about Elijah, before we go on, is where he came from. Tishbe in Gilead is possibly a place 22 miles south of uh, the Sea of Galilee. What makes that interesting is Jesus is from Galilee. He also came to represent the true nature of God to the uh, people of Israel. And then John the Baptist was said to come in the power of Elijah. He was called to prepare the way by confronting another false worship system, which was a combination of the le uh, leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That is a political and religious union for a common goal. Anytime the government says they're doing things for your good, it's a lie. There's usually money. There's usually power. We're going to see another union of political and religious at the end of the age. So the great harlot, right, that sits uh, on the dragon and drinks the blood of the saints, uh, that is a union between Antichrist and the great harlot, which is a false worship system. And, he, and actually the Antichrist is the one that destroys Babylon. So Jezebel has come to epitomize that harlot, okay? So we'll see this combination of the two, the political and religious, again. Okay, now, this is important to remember. Counterfeit religious systems and leaders can appear very righteous and even convincing when it comes to their views of all roads lead to the same place, and we must unify with those of other faiths. Kathy, did you know that? Jesus is inclusive. He's a socialist. I mean, every, you know, he took care of everybody, and then after he was gone, everybody took care of everybody. They forget that, you know, Paul said, hey, if you don't work, you don't eat. You don't give stuff to people that are lazy and refuse to eat. If they don't eat, they starve to death. Okay, so there was no socialism with Jesus. Ahab was on good terms with prophets of Yahweh. Again, what Yahweh? Which Yahweh were they worshiping? Because it could not be the true one. 
In fact, he had 400 prophets of Yahweh, which we'll find out in a later story. He even named his children with Yahwehistic or Yahweh's names, Ahaziah, Jehoram, Athaliah, all of these had the name Yahweh in there. But it was all a front for the deception instituted by Jeroboam. Therefore, God sent Elijah, whose very name means, My God is Lord. Now look past this time to the future. Okay? The sons of Greece will go to war with the sons of Zion. What does that mean? Greece epitomizes the thinking that knowledge is power. Religious institutions, social institutions, think tanks, etc. The sons of Zion are those who their sole purpose is they exist to worship God, and that's it. That's it. So there's going to be a growing, um, and we're not going to start it, but there's going to be a growing conflict between the religious system that will hearken in the Antichrist and those that refuse to bow the knee. Uh, in uh, Daniel 11, it says that some of those will try to join us by intrigue. So you'll see a return to the underground church. Now, whether that happens in all the world, uh, I, I am not inclined to believe. I think that's why right now you see a positioning of states in a positioning of countries like there's a lot of good stuff going on in like Brazil and Portugal and all those little countries that no one pays attention to there's a reason for that because there's a God move okay now you got big ones like England and France and us and Russia and all that where they get all the attention and rightfully so to a degree but we'll if everybody was to take the mark of the Antichrist, there would be no one left after it. Okay, so not everyone is going to take the mark, including unbelievers. So there will be a mixture there. I think our goal is to make sure America is not included in that. But what you'll see is more and more government-endorsed religious systems and unifications. Even the Pope, you know, well, he's opened it up to all faiths. Okay, so that that's what's happening in the world. You can see that in this, everybody's got to take the vaccine. I mean, it's mm -hmm. this, I think it's that same type mentality. You have to do this, and they're going to use several different excuses why you have to do it. It's for the you know, greater good. For the greater good, you know. That is one of the biggest lies. Because when I asked when the Lord, used he did. And remember when I was like, Lord, how did this happen? What the heck? How did we end up closing down our country and churches being closed for the first time since 16-something? What on earth? And he said, oh, well, it's the deception for the greater good. They will always appeal to the goodness of mankind that we have to do these things. And fear is a very effective and powerful motivator. So you're going to, and here's what's ironic. Those that press things on us that have fear, okay? Or they think we're selfish because we don't buy into the greater good crap. Which, first of all, if you are a spirit-filled Christian, you should be able to heal these things, number one. So that truth needs to be captured. But anyway, so we're going to be looked at as the enemy. And the very calls for tolerance and unification and everyone believing the way they want to believe will all of a sudden be thrown out the window because it's never been about that. In fact, the word tolerant 
to the people that are socialists means something totally different than what it means to the useful idiots. Tolerant means we will only use that word to gather enough people to then overthrow those that we want to overthrow. So they have a totally different de uh, definition for words. Okay, it's a very interesting thing. It's a well, I I will tolerate you just as long as you agree with me. Yes, that's pretty much what I get. So <laughs> any true prophet must be willing to endure their own words. That's scary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very important. Elijah's life was negatively impacted by the drought as well. But he was always taken care of as we read. The Lord told him to hide himself by the brook, and then the brook dried up. So here's the second word that was given to him in 1 Kings 17, 8-9. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, which I think is funny uh, because of where Jezebel is from, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. Now Zarephath is uh, in uh, what we would call Lebanon today. So Elijah had to leave his own country to be fed in a foreign country. Now this is where, this is so cool guys. Okay, so in verses 10 through 16, so he rose, he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, bring me a little water and a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called her and said, Hey, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, Well, as the Lord, your God, lives, interesting, so she knew who Yahweh was, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son so that we can eat it and die. <clears throat> that's, not, that's great news. You know, the prophet is going to get fed and... Basically, this widow's like, yep, this is our last meal, and then we're just going to curl up together and die. Okay, well, he said, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and then afterward, make something for yourself and your son. What? Elijah, you narcissistic, low-empathy <laughs> psychopath, you. The poor widow. Now, here's what's happening. He's instituting a spiritual law. You get a blessing of a prophet if you honor a prophet. This had nothing to do with narcissism. This had to do with in order for this widow to survive, she was going to have to feed him first because that would trigger that law and then it would open the door to provision. Okay? So, she did, which is amazing. Then he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, The jar of flour shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. So she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord. Okay, so here are some key lessons. Number one, the safest place is obedience. When uh, the kids told us they were moving to Washington, <coughs> D.C., Washington, D.C. has one of the highest crime rates of you know, the large cities in this nation. And not to mention, it's swamp. It's, it, literally, they had to drain it to build Washington, D.C. So anyway, I was like, the first thing I told Kent, the safest place you will be is in obedience. It doesn't matter if you're in Clovis, New Mexico, Washington, D.C., L.A., it does not matter. But if you are out of obedience, Clovis will be very unsafe for you. 
So the safest place is obedience. Elijah had been daily fed by birds for however long. He then is now fed by the widow. She's now taken care of. So because he was a recipient of God's faithfulness, he's neither alarmed nor dismayed when the widow's like, hey, I just got enough food to feed myself and my son. Number two, recognizing the Lord in others. The widow had to have recognized Elijah as a prophet of Yahweh because she said, as the Lord your God lives. And that word Lord, if you look back, is in caps, right? So it's Yahweh. So does she have a curiosity in knowing, you know? Well, I wonder, because we know, you know, he pronounced no rain. Right. And we know from, uh, like, Joshua and stuff that their things that they had done had gone ahead yes. and preceded them. That we've heard about this, and we've yep. heard how you've, uh, you know. God split the sea. God yeah, did and, this. Mm-hmm. and beat the other armies and your enemies. And yeah. So, when they're saying, why doesn't it rain? What's going on? You know? Yeah. And then I think it is built up, and she's heard at this point. Plus, he might have been dressed like a prophet. I think they did dress in a way to be recognized, uh, because we know he had a mantle. And Mm -hmm. uh, John the Baptist wore camel's hair, which is weird, and ate bugs. So they obviously probably dressed a certain way. Okay, then she believed. She had more faith than many do today. At Elijah's word, a stranger in her land, she made his food, first honoring God and trusting that if she did, she would have plenty of provision. God, Jesus, God in the flesh, honored her. In Luke 4, 24-26, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Bam! She got honored above all the women back in the Bible because of her obedience. She wasn't even an Israelite. So this was an indictment against the inhabitants of Jesus' hometown for not recognizing the prophet. The very one Moses prophesied would come who was in their synagogue and because of their unbelief, he could do no mighty works there. Okay, now, you think things would get better from there, right? All right, she's blessed the prophet, everything's good, she's being taken care of. Well, verse 17. And after this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe there was no breath left in him. And and she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son. Stop right there. How did she interpret God? Mm -hmm. Through her Mm -hmm. own sin. Mm -hmm. You never interpret God through your own sin. You never say this is happening to me because I must have done something wrong. What are the levels of discipline? First the word, then action, and then you get a guilty verdict. And not only that, he's long-suffering. So the first question should not be, what have I done? Now, if you've done something, it is a guarantee Holy Spirit will tell you. (laughs) He'll either tell you personally or he'll use people or your conscience, right? But she's interpreting the death of her son that basically God killed him. Okay? 
because she had some sin, some past thing going on. So he said to her, give me your son. And he took her, him from her arms and carried him up into the utter, utter, upper chamber where he lodged, and he laid him on his own bed. Now listen to Elijah's idea of God. I'm a little bit irritated with him. He said, O oh Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? No, he did not, Elisha, actually. But they had this Old Testament mentality, right? So he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O oh Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and I would put in parentheses in spite of his false accusations. And the life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said, Now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Okay. Now, like we said, she thought that God killed her son because of some sin. And this is mo the response most Christians have to trials and tragedy and tribulations. This is a performance-based mindset. Okay? Now, obviously, we can open ourselves up to tragedy through sin or even prayerlessness. Uh, offense, ignoring wisdom. There's so many things. But here's what I want you to see. God sent Elijah to this woman not only to keep him alive during a famine, but to resurrect her son. In other words, God sent the answer before the problem. Can we add one more thing that I think? Because we know that because he did this three times, I think it was a prophetic sign, even though he didn't know what it was. Three days. Uh, three days, and then he will rise again. So I think, uh, I think even though Elijah didn't understand what he was doing. Right. Because that makes no sense. One time, five times, three times, whatever. Right. But three times, then I think that he, and we have that recorded, that is a sign for us of Jesus. And to not stop praying. Mm -hmm. You know, don't, well, I prayed it didn't work. Well, and obedience. Elijah, like I said right here, we know Elijah didn't understand because of what he said. Mm -hmm. But God evidently told him what to do. Yes, and he led did. him what to do. He did it. So it tells us that we do not have to understand always. That's true. That's true. We just have to be obedient. Obedient. Now, yep. later on, we may understand or we might not. I doubt if Elijah understood. You know, he yeah. may not ever understand. Well, and we know that he had problems because remember, he he could not get intimate with the Lord. Mm -hmm. Remember, it just he couldn't get past his task and the harshness of God um, to him was very real versus the long suffering. But I just thought, you know, here, like you said, you got Elijah who thought the same way. You know, he, he agreed with the, but he didn't say so. I thought that was interesting. He waited until he went to his private quarters, and then he said, "What? Did you, you know, did you kill this kid? I mean, we gotta fix this here." But I just, to me, okay. Paul called the Old Testament the ministry of death. It was definitely the law, 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 law. If you don't keep the law, you get stoned to death. If you don't keep the law, blah, blah. So there's definitely that mentality that was created. But the idea that God sent the answer before the problem is intriguing. Okay, so what that tells me is whatever problem you're having, look around. 
there's already a solution. Look around. It's like Elisha, when he went to the lady that the oil, she needed money to pay her debt or they were going to take her kid, right? He said, here's what you need to do. Get a whole bunch of jars, fill them up. There was a problem. She had to find a solution. The solution was in her house. So don't look at the problem. Because if you look at the problem, you will not see the solution. When I was looking at our debt problem, what did God do? He gave me a business idea that I had skills that were already in my house that I could use, right? That's what I'm talking about. You have a solution, whether it's a person, it's a skill, it's a word, it's a direction, whatever it is. Now, again, you know, you're Elijah this later in a time where God is sanctioning apparent genocide of entire nations, right? He was like, wipe all of these people out. Well, again, it was because of the giants. He didn't just pick nations and say kill them all. They had giants. There was corruption. So when you look at, okay, why would God say stone a child that's rebellious? Why would God say stone an adulterer? Why would God wipe out entire nations? Um, why was it necessary? Because there was no answer to sin. So sin will spread, right? There was no answer to it. So the only thing that was going to preserve a nation before Jesus came was a very strict uh, interaction with specific sins. Now, Jesus is the solution to sin. The nature, okay, Jesus came to restore as the last Adam that which was lost. The nature of God in man and all that meant before the fall. Authority, connection, God consciousness versus sin consciousness, presence, brilliance, divine health, prosperity, soul peace, and most importantly, freedom from the dominion or domination of sin. Now, in the Passion Translation in Romans, it said, Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power? For we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we would not continue to live as one uh, one moment longer submitted to sin's power. Obviously, a dead person is incapable of sinning. Then in verses 10 through 14, For by his sacrifice he died to sin's power once and for all, but he now lives continuously for the Father's pleasure. So let it be the same way with you. Since you're now joined with him, you must continually, continually view yourselves as dead and unresponsive to sin's appeal while living daily for God's pleasure in union with Christ or Jesus the Anointed One. Get this, sin is a dethroned monarch. So you must no longer give it an opportunity to rule over your life, controlling how you live and compelling you to obey its desires and cravings. So then refuse to answer its call to surrender your body as a tool for wickedness. Instead, passionately answer God's call to keep yielding your body to Him as one who has now experienced resurrection life. You live now for His pleasure, ready to be used for His noble purpose. Remember this, sin will not conquer you. God already has. You are not governed by law, but governed by the reign of the grace of God. Now, verse 14 is very important. The secret to living your new life in Christ is to not be governed by the law, but be ruled by grace. Why? 1 Corinthians 15, 56. 
Sin gives death its sting, and the law gives sin its power. So the law empowers sin. The payment or wages of sin is death. The way to stop sinning is to be ruled by grace, not the law. Okay, so that's why you cannot go to the law of performance. I did this, therefore this is happening to me. That's not how it works. It's grace. That's the working of the Holy Spirit inside you that then begins to manifest outwardly in life. So Holy Spirit translates the new nature, which was not a reality in the Old Testament, into your soul through discipleship, study of the Word, presence, and this begins to dominate your outward life. The work of the law was external, meant to tutor Israel for their need of a Savior. The work of Jesus is internal, and it transforms all areas of our life. The only law is the law of love. Okay, so if we go back to the perception of the widow and Elijah, both interacted with God the only way they knew how. Death. That's the only way they knew how. But God's will has always been life. He didn't need convincing to resurrect the young man. It doesn't say that the Bible responded to Elijah's argument. He listened to his voice. Okay? That's important. God, you cannot stiff-arm him. He doesn't need to be stiff-armed. In fact, he is anxiously sitting on the edge of his throne to pour out blessing. You don't have to stiff-arm him for that. You just need to ask. The word voice is a voice, a sound, a noise, a cry. It can refer to any sound, including the Lord's voice, as well as human. We see Elijah cry to the Lord, let this life's, child's life come into him again. That is the sound the Lord responded to. Because the first wasn't a decree of life, it was an accusation of death against the Lord. Okay? It's the war of sound. We're back to it again. What sound are we releasing? What sound are we listening to? Sound is very, very important in this time. So it's important to ask yourself, which am I crying out for? Am I responding to things in my life with an undercurrent of blame toward God? Blame toward myself? Is my response performance-based? Or do you scan the room for the solution God has already provided and then apply that? Scan, not scam. Okay, now thank goodness Elijah had a cry of resurrection in there or that boy would not have been resurrected. This is a huge subject. I'm only scanning the surface. I would encourage you to study this more. Examine your words. Examine your thoughts. Because know this, thoughts are heard just as loud in heaven as voices, right? So there's a sound that may be warring inside of your head. And you need to be aware of that. Um, okay, there's a verse that says we should fear him who can kill the body and send the soul to hell. Let's break that down. The first thing is death is an enemy to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25-26, it says, He must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The source of death is the devil. John 10.10 says the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John 8.44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character because he's a, a liar and a father of lies. So who killed the little boy? Right? The devil. Jesus is the father in the flesh, right? So when he came to represent the father, he said, when you see me, you see the father. He's eternal. Therefore, all the way back to this instance, it was not God who killed this boy. It was the devil. So, the word sting, back in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, which the sting of death is sin, means, get this, I had no idea, the power or ability to kill or destroy. So, the power or ability to kill or destroy is sin, implying that sin can open us up to death. Hence, the wages or payment of sin is death. Jesus came and destroyed the power or the rule of sin, freeing us from it. He also became our mercy seat. So that if we sin, we can confess it. He's our lawyer, and he ensures that we get a verdict of innocent. This is the beauty of the work of Jesus. The devil steals, kills, and destroys. God's response to his work was to destroy it through his son on the cross, the blood and the resurrection. Meaning if you sin, the cross and the blood cover that. Then, any part of your life that's attacked by death, he can resurrect. But here's the conclusion. Death is not from God. He does not kill people. If someone dies where it says he will kill the flesh to save the soul, that person must be, what did we learn? Delivered, right? Delivered that one over to Satan. That's how that works. So God has no death in him. It's impossible. It'd be like, you know, a light bulb not working because electricity is getting to it. It's not the electricity's fault. It's the light bulb. So there's always electricity. There's always life. We just have to have the correct ideas, and we'll live an even more life. So when you're faced with grave circumstances, scan the room. Where is the provision? The solution God has already put there. And it is an indictment against us as a people of God that we cannot raise the dead more. It really is. Because the solution for dead kids is people that can resurrect them. You know what I mean? And we've been so concerned with other things that, you know, your chances of finding someone to resurrect anybody is going to be almost 0%. And that's referring to me and all of us ourselves. You know what I mean? It's like we have to get to that place where the answers are the supernatural power of God. In Psalm 139.5 it says, You've gone into my future to prepare the way, and in kindness you follow behind me to spare me from the harm of my past. You have laid your hand on me. So what about the idea of death as a judgment? In the study in our Hebrews uh, series, Evidence of His Faithfulness, that's where the lessons of discipline come from. And like we learned, that word deliver means to hand over or to convey something to someone, particularly a right or an authority. So the devil's the one who kills. So when you deliver someone over to Satan, they are then uh, possibly under his control to be taken out. Okay, James 1, 16 through 17, Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. In the Passion, it says, Every gift God freely gives us is good and perfect, streaming down. Okay, constant supply. 
from the Father of lights, who shines from heavens with no hidden shadow or darkness and is never subject to change. God has delighted to give us birth by the truth of His infallible word, infallible word so that we would fulfill His chosen destiny for us and become the favorite ones out of all of His creation. Now, in the Passion Translation, it says shadow of turning. The implication is there is nothing that you will find wrong with God. Nothing in Him that can even remotely appear to be evil hiding. The more you get to know Him, the more you realize how beautiful and holy He is. Okay, death is just not in Him. The idea of the word darkness in the Passion, God is life, death is not found in Him. However, we can commit such sin where the only verdict is death. Therefore, that person is handed over to the one who does kill. God holds all authority. Therefore, at His word, the sentence might be a death sentence. But you can guarantee that He would have warned many, many times and in different ways. So back to the perception of God in our text. The widow felt that God had sent the prophet to take her son due to some past sin. The idea that sin can cause death is legitimate, but the perception of God's character and role in it was not. What I see in this story is that out of all the widows in the land, God sent Elijah to her, a non-Israelite, because God knew she had the heart and faith to respond to his voice, respond to his sound. And when the enemy killed her son, God had already sent the solution to her house, the prophet. Death is God's enemy. It has always been and will always be his enemy. And his response to death was for his son to conquer it. So Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, delivered him to his mother, and Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said, Now I know you're a man of God, and the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Woo! We're like 12 minutes over. But it was kind of hard to figure out where to stop. But if there's anything you walk away from, it's that the correction of Elijah was just that. Get the people of Israel back to God. The other important lesson is obedience equals safety. And the third lesson is whenever you have a problem, look for the solution. It's already there. Isn't that neat? I love that. All right, so any thoughts? Any, you know, do you need to wake up? <laughs> stretch? I felt like I just <laughs> sprayed everybody with That's a fire hose. I'm still My apologies. That's why you have notes and you can always listen or rewatch. Trying to get to the end. Well, let's, um, let's pray real quick and get our tithes and offerings. And I uh, appreciate you guys going with me on that um, ride around the racetrack. All right. Well, Father, we, we thank you so much that the solution is always there. The idea that when you looked at the condition of man, instead of condemning mankind, you sent an answer. And that answer cost you something. It wasn't just that you gave us you know, good jobs and do-betters and all that. You literally became man and you suffered not just a crucifixion, which was one of the most shameful and brutal 
uh, ways to die back in the Roman Empire. But all of the suffering, your beard being ripped out, the cat of nine tails that literally ripped skin off your body and exposed your internal organs, all of that. And you did it for the joy set before you. And the joy was to restore that which was lost. And so, Father, there are no words that can thank you enough, but the idea that when we have a problem, you already have a solution, that is life-changing. And so I ask, actually, you know what, Father? We make a commitment to stop, to stop questioning your character, to stop blaming you for things, to stop wondering why you didn't do this and why you didn't do that and all this allowing nonsense and just all of the things that we've created out of a lazy idea of who you are. Instead of saying, okay, Lord, this occurred. Show me where the solution is. Show me how to prevent this in the future. What lessons might I take out of victory to help other people who are going through similar things? Instead of doing that, we just blamed you for anything bad that occurred in our lives. And so, Father, we make a commitment this morning to stop. In fact, I think today is 12-12, the day of authority. We are no longer going to submit to the authority of death. Instead, we're going to allow grace to rule. And we're going to quit going to, you must have done this to me because I must have committed some type of sin. We trust you to let us know if we did something wrong. And so, Father, remind us the stages of discipline. You use the word to discipline. You use instruction and deed to discipline way long and way before you ever have to announce a guilty verdict. So, Father, we don't want to be stiff-necked. We don't want to stiff-arm you. We want to correct and align ourselves according to your word, not interpret circumstances as God being angry and killing people. And so, Father, I also ask that you help, like uh, Hank Kuhneman said, be careful interpreting natural events. We're not here to broadcast natural events under an umbrella of what God is necessarily doing. We are here to be the solution, to be the answer. And so, Father, I ask that you help us do that. We can recognize that we're opening ourselves up to things, but, Father, I think there's been a lot of interpretation out there that is incorrect of the nature of God. The nature of God is seen in your blessing, your favor, and your goodness upon us. That will save nations. And, Father, finally, I ask that you help us hear the right sound. There's a lot of sound out there. A lot of things going on and being said. And even just taking it internally, there's a lot of sound that's going on, on the inside of us. We want to hear your sound. And we want you to respond to the correct sound that we give forth in our prayers. So help us do that. Help us to begin to turn off all the sounds going on that are not of you. And tune in and turn up the sound of God on the inside of us. Because you created us to align with that sound. So we thank you for that. This morning, uh, as a demonstration of our loyalty and to just irritate the dickens out of the devil, we want to give our tithes and offerings to you. Because that is a sign of loyalty to the God whom we worship, not the God of mammon. We give cheerfully. We give without constraint. And we give with joy. Because we know your promise is you will not abandon, nor do without, nor let down. And you take delight and hilarity 
and a hilarious giver. Oh, and Father, one more thing. In worship, I heard you say we need a revival, but it needs to be a revival of joy. So, Father, I ask that you rev uh, revive us in joy, the oil of joy, for those who hate unrighteousness. And I pray it sweep across this city, this state, this county, and this nation, and the world. A revival of joy. Because we've gotten a little too serious and sour-faced, Father. I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.